This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, it's time for another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Uh, I'm Jonathan Mayo. I'll be pretending to be your host today. Uh, Jason Ratliff is uh, off doing bigger and better things. Of course, I'm joined, as always, by Jim Callis, uh, who is in the middle of uh, another week of mock draft insanity. You surviving that so far, James? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on the mock a little bit later. You know, what I found is I actually felt like people, I don't know if it was more talkative or had more information a couple weeks ago than they were this week. Like this week, everybody seems to be kind of getting down to, ah, oh, we got to line up our board. Don't really know a whole lot, blah, blah, blah. I felt like, like once you got past, you know, you know, got to the middle of the draft, people were a little bit more forthcoming last week and or, or two weeks ago. But uh, I, I've joked, and we'll, again, we'll talk about this more later in the podcast. I feel like I could just turn in my same mock from two weeks ago, and it would be fine. I, I think as of now, like maybe only two of my first fourteen picks, or, or that's how far I've plotted out. Only two of them are different than what I had two weeks ago. Not that I think they're set in stone, but just you get past like the ninth or tenth pick and. You know, then you're kind of educated guessing, and the same educated guesses make sense to me, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, one way uh, we'll put a pin in that, we'll talk about it a little later on. We want to take a look back. Uh, you know, the mocks are take, trying to take a look ahead, but you know, one of the things we always say this time of year, uh, gets to be a broken record a bit, is that you don't really know who had the best drafts or, or things of that until many, many years later. Uh, well, you uh, you put on those sort of hindsight glasses a little bit, Jim, and took a look back at the best draft classes in the history of the draft since 1965. I don't think it would surprise anyone who follows such things to know that 1985 was at the top of that list. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, you know, it's subjective when we do like which teams had the best draft. This is like which years had the most talent and. It's funny, you know, 1985, you know, the, the talent was so good that year that at the time, and this was actually predates, <laughs> I was in high school. I wasn't covering the draft yet. I was in high school. But but talking to Alan Simpson, the, the premier draft historian who was running Baseball America back then, at the time, everybody was talking about how great this draft class was and how it had a chance to be the best ever, even before the draft took place. And 35 years later, that still holds up. And, and it, it was such a different era because – Part of the reason 85 was so good is you had Barry Bonds and Randy Johnson and Raphael Palmeiro and Barry Larkin and Will Clark and B.J. Serhoff and Walt Weiss and Bobby Witt and Joe McGrain and Pete Cavillia were all first-round picks who wound up having very lengthy, significant careers. All of them were drafted in high school in 1982 in the top 10 rounds. And as you know, like it's, it's a much different era now. Last year, top 10 rounds. Two players total didn't sign. And then 1982, all 10 of those guys were taken with early picks, didn't sign. It was it was just such a different era back then where if you 
tried to negotiate. A lot of teams looked at that like, oh, you don't want to play pro ball. And, you know, there's different versions of the Barry Bonds story. I've heard the Giants. The Giants took Barry Bonds in the second round. Like, so you, you can imagine he's one of the top, you know, fewer teams back then, one of the top, you know, 40 or so picks in the draft. Barry Bonds gets picked. And can you imagine a scenario today, Jonathan, where you wouldn't sign your second rounder out of high school? That seems impossible, you know, unless, like, he failed a physical or something. But back then, even crazier, depending on which version you hear, the Giants offered him $60,000, and Bonds had the temerity, Jonathan, to ask for $66,000. Or it might have been seventy versus seventy-five. <laughs> In any case, it's like a $5,000 or $6,000 gap. They can't close the gap. Just go to Arizona State. Go to school. And that was kind of the mentality back then. Like, like uh, you know, the year before that, Ron Darling was kind of the favorite to be the number one overall pick. He had the the, the no-hitter against, you know, St. John. He was at Yale against Frank Vogel and St. John's in, in the regionals, you know, classic college game. But you know why Ron Darling didn't go number one? Because he had an agent. Like, and, and no. Was, like, yeah, like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the draft now? Like, oh, we're not going to take a guy if he has an agent. Uh, we won't take him. Well, like, I don't know who you would take 1-1. I honestly don't know who would go 1-1 this year. Or I should say advisor, I guess, technically. But uh, but anyway, um, so th- that was part You're allowed to say agent now for college players, so we're okay. That's true. But so, so anyway, but getting back to 1985 for a second, all those guys I rattled off out of high school were in the draft. Plus, back then, college ace baseball was just really taking off. It, I consider that kind of the golden age of college baseball. More schools were emphasizing the sport, not as many as today, but it was really growing. And it was becoming a viable alternative to turning pro out of high school if you want to play pro ball. And you didn't have any of the restrictions that you, you've had in the last you know, 20 years or so in the NCAA or 30 years. You had more scholarships. You could play more game. You know, you'd, some teams were playing upwards of 80 games a season. You didn't have limits on how many hours you could practice and work with players. So you basically had this, this, this huge influx of high school talent when college baseball was, was really hitting its stride developmentally. And it led to that great draft. And, you know, and you even, you know, in the first round, you also had high school players like Brian McRae and, and Greg Jeffries, neither of whom became a star, but, you know, lasted forever. You know, Randy Johnson, I, I misspoke, actually went in the second round. He was wild. He didn't have a ton of success at Southern Cal. John Smoltz went to the 22nd round because of signability, got first round money. They had three Hall of Famers there with those two guys in Larkin. And then you just had guys like Mark Grace was a 24th rounder. Brady Anderson was a 10th rounder. You know, Mike Stanley, Randy Velarde, your your January and, and, and secondary drafts had Chuck Finley and John Wetland, Todd Stottlemyre. So I think that draft will be very, very hard to top. Yeah, I think you're right. Smoltz, was, was that like a draft and follow situation because of that? I don't remember when he's remember. Was it talked to him about this during we were we were getting rained on last year in spring training. No, he was he was considered highly talented, but he just yeah, I think he signed for I want to say sixty five thousand dollars maybe, which was big money back then. Um, and teams didn't want to meet his asking price and they weren't going to budge. And so it got word out, got out. OK, this guy's not going to be signable. And then the, the Giants took him. I mean, not the Giants, the Tigers took him in the 22nd round and wound up getting the deal done for, I want to say it was $65,000, if I remember correctly. Looking through the rest of your top five, uh, 1981 was number two. That was the year that the Padres got Tony Gwynn in the third round. Uh, David Cohn, Fred McGriff, among the others you listed there. 1989 uh, was number three. Uh, Trevor Hoffman, Jim Tomei, Jeff Bagwell, Frank Thomas, uh, taking seventh overall. He was considered a huge reach at the time. Like, I was like, oh, there's this one-dimensional DH. How could you take the guy that high? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I mean, you, you look at other drafts and guys that sort of fit that description haven't always worked out, right? So I understand the hesitation. But uh, uh, 1986 was number four. Um, Jeff King, yeah, the, you were just saying the, the top six had long successful careers with uh, Jeff King, Greg Swindell, Matt Williams, uh, Kevin Brown, Kent Merker, and Gary Sheffield. Um, as the top six, it's rare that there wasn't one sort of miss there. Right. I mean, and, and they and it wasn't like it was even like they all got to the big leagues. I mean, all those guys played for a long time. They weren't superstars necessarily, but they all played for a very long time. And then I thought it was interesting because the 2002 draft, which is best known, of course, for Moneyball, um, and had some kind of misses at the top the draft with Brian Bullington, Adam Lowen, some others, uh, even BJ Upton was in the big leagues, but never really like lived up to expectations yet still made your top five. Yeah, that was, that was a weird one. Like I, you know, obviously the longer you have time to accumulate, you know, players in the big leagues, the draft's going to look better, but like, you know, you, you talk about Moneyball, And so, you know, part of the, 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 one of the things in the book was like about how superior college players were. And yet only one of the top 13 players from that draft came from a four-year college. That was Curtis Granderson. And again, you know, like the top five there was horribly disappointing where, you know, Chris Gruller and Clint Everts and Adam Lowen, like were, were you know, none of those guys did much. Um, but yet you still, you know, you still have guys going strong. Zach Greinke, who was the number six overall pick. You know, Joey Votto, who, who was kind of a surprise second round pick. Cole Hamels, who at the time, there was concern he had broken his arm in a, I think, you know, you heard various stories, but like playing football on the street, he had a, but it, it scared teams. Oh, like, Oh, is that arm going to hold up? And, and the guy's still going strong. You know, John Lester's still going, um, you know, Russell Martin was a draft and follow who they could, the Dodgers converted to catcher, you know, Hallie Kendrick was a junior college player who nobody really, you know, not many teams knew about, but was a 10th round pick and so on. But yeah, so it's, it's interesting. If you, if you read Moneyball, and you looked at the top of the draft, you think that the college was definitely the way to go and that that was a terrible draft, and neither of those was true in 2002. The one, the one draft class I wanted to ask you about that didn't make uh, your story is the 2005 draft, which if I, with, without digging deep in like you did, I would have thought would have been a contender, um, but maybe, you know, maybe it's just, you know, the, so the first round is littered with, you know, names, Justin Upton, Ryan Zimmerman, Ryan Braun, you know, Andrew McCutcheon, Jay Bruce, uh, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Troy Tulowitzki. Um, did, did, did that year draft enter into the conversation at all? Or was it just not that good beyond the, the sort of first round and change? No, I mean, it, it is good. What I ran into is like, you, because this story by nature, you're listing like 15 or 20 guys. We kind of decided, you know, if we do 10 of these, we're throwing like 200 names of people and it just, your eyes glaze over. Even my eyes glazed over a little bit after reading it. So like I said before, 2005 is still going. Um, you know, like we didn't have a precise formula, but like I think your typical draft, if you consider your high school guys are 18, you know, probably is going to accumulate war for 22 or so years. So 2005 still has you know, another seven years, you know, guys on, you know, more on the back end of their careers to accumulate war. I do think when 2005 is all is said and done has a chance to, to probably crack the top five. But I think that's also true of a lot of 
not not I shouldn't say not every recent, but but several of the recent drafts. And so we chose to spotlight the two that seemed to have the greatest chance, which were 2009 and 2011. Like not that we didn't base this solely on war, but just by comparison's sake. So the the 1985 draft had over 1,100 war, and no, no draft has even had over a thousand. And so then, and again, it wasn't the only consideration, but you had, you know, you have drafts, you, the 1981 draft had over 900 and a couple others. But so I, I do think 2005 will jump in there. Right now, 2005 has 783 war. 2009, which is four years behind them, has 755 already. They're only 28 war and they've got four years. And then 2011, which is really just getting going, already has 615 or 600 war, 596 war to be exact. And it looks like it could, I mean, it looks like 2009 and 2011 both look like they will top, you know, 1,000 or 1,100 war. And again, I mean, we looked at star talent. It's not just, you know, hey, we have a bunch of guys who got three war here and there. But so anyway, 2005 was strong. It's just the the story I, I think I wrote seventeen hundred words ranking five drafts and mentioning two others and to get into all of them uh, it would have been kind of crazy it, it's interesting though that you get these pockets because it looks like two thousand nine two thousand ten and two thousand eleven do have a chance to be you know maybe three of the top ten drafts of all time I, I which I think is more cyclical than anything well it's good stuff check check out the story we also have a story from last week we're not going to get into now where we did you know our, our in our typical one for each team format the best draft class for each organization um so there's some some interesting draft history stuff there as well yeah and speaking of draft history i mean you were busy also jonathan uh i guess uh, part of that 2005 draft but unsigned and part of the 2004 draft and part of the 2008 draft was Charlie Blackman, who had a, a very unusual odyssey to, to even just getting to pro ball. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about that? How, how much fun was it to work on that story, which, which, which just coincidentally involved several of our favorite, favorite scouting friends with, with Brian Bridges being an area scout who was involved. Alan Matthews, who I worked with at Baseball America, was an area scout who was involved. It was a good cast of characters. Yeah, it, it was a sort of a perfect storm in terms of a really, really good story and people who really love to tell stories, right? Scouts, by and large, you know, painting with a broad brush, but, you know, you get them to sit down and talk about this kind of stuff. You get really good stuff. And the, the oral history that ended up on the site is only a, a small snippet of the, the interviews I did. I ended up doing nine total interviews uh, for this story. Uh, you mentioned Brian Bridges, uh, who is now uh, you know, a national scout for the Giants, was the scouting director for the Braves. He was an area scout in 2004 for the Marlins, and they drafted Charlie Blackman as a projectable left-handed pitcher out of high school that year in the 28th round. Now, he didn't sign, but it wasn't because he had any like huge college offers. In fact, he had no college offers. The one and only place that offered him a spot was Young Harris Junior College in 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 his backyard in in Georgia. Now Young Harris is a good JUCO program. Nick Marcakis had come from there, uh, and Marcakis was a very talented two way player. But he but um, Blackman was only pitching there his first year. His sophomore year he DH'd a little bit. Uh, he got drafted after his first year at Young Harris College uh, by the Red Sox in the twentieth round. Went back again. 
Then he started having some elbow issues. So the, the real turning point, and I'll just, let me tick off all the people I, I talked to. So I mentioned Brian Bridges. Um, I talked to Rusty Greer. I'll tell you why in a second. I talked to Danny Hall at Georgia Tech. Uh, Alan Matthews, uh, who was the area scout for the Rockies in 2008. Danny Montgomery, who was a cross-checker for the Rockies. Uh, Bill Schmidt, the scouting director for the Rockies. Dan O'Dowd, who was the general manager at the time, and now our friend at MLB Network. Am I forgetting anybody? Uh, I even talked to uh, uh, Rolando Pino, who had a very small sort of uh, cameo in, in what happened. But so but this is basically what happened. Um, and he finishes his uh, sophomore year at Young Harris. He gets noticed by Georgia Tech, who had sort of been following him. He'd had a fairly good cape after his freshman year at Young Harris. And he goes and he's going to pitch, but his elbow starts really acting up. He ends up redshirting. He threw one inning. He didn't make any road trips. And anyone who's ever seen Charlie Blackman play, you can imagine how terrible this must have been for him, as competitive as he is. So he he's going to go to play in the Texas Collegiate Summer League, which was only in its second or third season, to make up for lost innings. And the head coach is, or the manager, is Rusty Greer. Uh, the former Rangers outfielder. And Charlie tells Rusty Greer that he's a two-way player, even though he's really not. And so they start DHing him, and he's hitting well. And one day, Rusty Greer sees Charlie Blackman just running sprints in the outfield and says, holy cow. Works him out in the outfield for a few days, and then he ends up playing center field the rest of the summer while, while pitching also. Calls Danny Hall, the Georgia Tech coach, and said, listen, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but you should take a look at him as an outfielder. So Danny Hall listens to Rusty Greer, because why wouldn't you? Has a good fall. Charlie Blackman never pitches again. Plays the outfield. Almost hits 400 as a senior. And the Rockies kind of steal him in the second round. Uh, Rolando Pino uh, was an area scout at the time with the Cubs and put him in as a second rounder. Um, but the Cubs didn't take him in the second round. And the rest, as they say, is history. And, you know, Blackman has gone on to be one of the best hitters in the National League, hitting for a lot more power than even those who really liked him. Danny Montgomery, the the, the biggest fan amongst them, uh, than they ever thought he would. Yeah, well, I remember talking to Alan at the time, because that, that might have been Alan's first year scouting for the Rockies. It was either his first, it was his first year scouting, first guy he ever signed. And we were very excited um, that was the highest pick anybody who had baseball who'd worked for Baseball America had gotten to that point. We've we've had some first rounders since then, um, but anyway, we were uh, really excited for him. And I remember Alan at the time admitting he's like, "Look, I really liked him, but I I had him as more of a fourth rounder." Which you know, as he told you in your story, had <laughs> had and not that they let the the area scout, especially first year area scout, tell you where to take him. But you know, if Alan had been in charge of waiting until the fourth round, then he, then it never would have gotten him. How uh, how easy or difficult was it to get a hold of Charlie Blackman? I, I know you probably had a lot of these numbers uh, in your, in your cell phone already. How easy was it to get a hold of Charlie Blackman? For this? Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and obviously the big leaguers are, are the, the hardest. And that was the one name I didn't mention that I actually did talk to him as well. Uh, I, I think the fact that uh, all players have time on their hands right now worked to my advantage. It was just a question of whether or not he was going to be in his house or out in nature right. and he's a big outdoors guy he could have been on a boat fishing someplace so it took a little while um and but once we got it figured out he was fantastic and 
anyone who has ever talked to Charlie Blackman knows he's great. You know, it's kind of once you get him. Um, and he was, he was fantastic. I mean, I know he's told the story before, but this, you know, this dug a little bit deeper and I was able to kind of relay some of the, the, the different things that the scouts told me. And one of the things that sort of came out of this Jim that I thought was kind of interesting in a, in a broader sort of scouting scope was I think Alan Matthews called it um, the scouts get focused too much on an anchor position. Uh, he said like, that's the fancy term, but Brian Bridges alluded to it. It's like, you get so caught up in thinking that a guy is this one thing that you completely miss on what else he can do, even though at the time, you know, and I tell him the story that the Marlins cross checker, uh, Mike Kenahia said, you know, what? I kind of like a swing, you know, we could draft and follow him as an outfielder, but Brian was so stuck on him being a projectable left-handed pitcher and he wasn't alone. I mean, he didn't get a lot of pro interest, but even the schools that liked him only wanted him as a pitcher. Heck, you know, Georgia Tech, after two years at Young Harris, only wanted him as a pitcher. So it's not really – Charlie Blackman only thought of himself as a pitcher in high school. But it is one of these interesting things, and there are lots and lots of other examples of this where scouts are so like, no, this guy is a pitcher. And they miss out that, well, you know what, maybe he could do this other thing. I wonder if that's changing a little bit now with people more willing to look at guys as two-way players. Although in this case, the player himself only thought of himself as one thing, but it is something that does create blind spots for scouts at times. Yeah, no, I thought that was, that was an interesting part of the story too. You kind of have to be open-minded and, you know, if you're, if you're open-minded and open-minded and creative with your thinking, you know, some, some new possibilities might uh, present themselves. I mean, and that's why, I mean, you've heard me rail several times when we, t- we just talk about the draft, not about this situation in particular, but I just, it's hard, you know, as one of our favorite scouting directors says, the draft is hard. And in a typical draft, you know, we talk about this, like when we talked about me doing the 10 years ago redrafts, there aren't 30 stars in a, in a typical draft. If you get a decent reliever with the 30th overall pick, you're coming out ahead. And that's why it drives me nuts when you sometimes, you know, with the blinders too, you know, oh, I can't take a high school player. I can't take this, or we want to focus on this in particular. You you close yourself off. So I I just think, I mean, this is another example of how in scouting, uh, you know, it really does help to have an open mind and try to get creative because who knows how it'll pay off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Speaking of creative, or or I guess maybe, the lack of creativity at this point, as we, we touched on early on, uh, it is it is mock draft season for sure. We're not the only ones. Uh, you know, all of our colleagues across other publications are putting out projections of the first round. They all look kind of the same. Uh, obviously, performances are not entering into consideration of guys moving up and down. We don't have that interesting tidbit which sometimes is just a, a device, you know, that we could use in writing where GM from player from team X was at this guy's game. So this week's mock, that's who they're taking. Um, but we don't have any of that, you know, we don't, and we don't have the, uh, you know, boy, this player really did well in the zoom interview. Uh, so, but I'm wondering, Jim, you know, you're, as we're recording this, you are uh, working on this week's mock, uh, Anything, anything interesting coming up of that, or is it kind of more, you know, as you said, it's more of the same, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I, it's weird because fans could we we could do we could alternate doing a mock every day, and and then MLB.com would probably say, you know what, you guys should each do a mock daily because you can never have enough mocks. But you know, like I was alluding to, it just doesn't seem like I, I don't think it means by any means picks are locked in stone or, or anything like that. But I, you know, the, the, I feel like okay, the first nine picks. Like I feel like that's comfort zone is not the right term, but I feel like there's all kinds of intel. Like you have to figure out how the puzzle fits together. But like I feel like okay, like I kind of like we could play a game. You know, I could give you A, B, and C for each team. Like and I feel like okay, I, I I'm I'm somewhat wired in. I don't. I mean, you feel like you had the same kind of confidence, like first nine picks or so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then after that, it's like you kind of hear names, but like. Like, you know, starting with the Angels and the White Sox and the Reds, I, you know, Giants, like maybe little snippets, but I have much less confidence. And then I feel like by the time I get to like Texas, Philadelphia, Cubs, it's just all over the place. Like, like you just are random names and pieces of information, but no real concrete intel. Um, and so anyway, like I, I, I try not to look at my last mock or, or say what you did, but I plotted out the first 14 picks this morning. Um, and then I looked and it's only two picks different than what I had two weeks ago. And I think our first six picks, the one you did last week, Jonathan, I mean, this is all subject to change. If I get like a shocking phone call and then a couple hours between this recording and when I sit down to write this, but, uh, I think my first six are the same as your first six. We have the same number eight guy, the same number 10, 11 guy, same 14. I haven't projected more than that. Um, we've different guys at 12, but I like, I've heard a lot of you had Kate Cavalli at 12. I've heard a lot of him at 12. It looks like, I think I went back and did my same 10 through 14. Here's the one thing that killed me. <laughs> Here's the one thing that killed me, but like you all, we all know what's the most, what, what's the most important mock? What's the mock that counts? The, la- the very last one. The very last mock. So anyway, like, but like at the same time, you still like one, you want to get things right. And two, I would I will not mix things up just for the sake of mixing up, but I would love to mix things up and not give 12 of my top 14 picks are the same as two weeks ago. But I was talking to somebody last night and he said, Hey, I've got this one pretty good team is picking a couple spots ahead of us. Gave me the name, but he's like, you can't use that. Just, you got to hold off on that because I was, you know, I guess he was told us the confidence. Don't use that until the very end. And then what's funny is I had somebody else. I was, I was referencing, I, I was that player's this player's name came up in conversation with somebody else today. And somebody said, yeah, you know what I would do with him? I put him with team X, which was the team. This other team told me, uh, told me where to put him, but not to do it until the last mock, which I'm not because, it's, but it's, but anyway, like if I did that, then I could kind of mix things up some and have, you know, it'd be different, but it's, I, I think going to be more of the same. I will say, like, I think, in terms of guys moving in and out, I feel like Clayton Beater, who's who's kind of a hard guy to pin down because there's not a lot of track record, but the stuff is so good. I'll probably try to find a home for Clayton Beater, who who you had in yours. I snuck him in, yeah. Um, on the flip side, there's so many college pitchers, especially right-handers. Carmen Majinski may be the guy I projected the highest last time. I think I had him in the top 20 who, and I haven't done it yet. I might not put in this mock. Um, I'm hearing him more. You had him at 19 with the Mets in your last mock. Yeah, I was going to say, I had him, you know, like, he might be more of a sandwich round guy. I mean, I, I continue to 
not really know what to do with the high school pitchers, Mick Abel and Nick Bitsko and Jared Kelly or Garrett Mitchell or Ed Howard or Garrett Crochet. And I'll figure something out. Like I know you, you had Ed Howard in your mock, didn't you? I think I saw a recent mock, I think the last couple of days where he's not been in recent mocks and I'm not buying that Howard's not going in the first round. So I'll, I'll probably stick him in somewhere. I think, I think he's going in the first round. I had him uh, 27th to the twins. If you told me he ended up being one of these guys that goes in the, in the, in the comp rounds, a, I could see it, you know? Well, yeah. Cause I mean, you get to the point where like, if you get down there, you know, Baltimore has the first pick. They have the highest bonus pool. Pittsburgh has one of the highest bonus pools. And Kansas City is one of the highest bonus pools, as does San Diego, which has the fifth pick. That, yeah, those teams probably could pay more than teams in the 20s could. You know, you play that game of chicken and hope to scare teams off. So it's a possibly. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. I, I mean, I still think I probably will try to get him into the back end of the first round. And the thing is like, and I don't know how much you're talking to teams in the back end of the first round at this point, I started doing that with the last one, mostly as we've said, you know, many times before uh, we mostly want to just put a name with the team. So the, the scouting staff of that team or the scouting director, we know, you know, we don't get a, a call or a text from, you know, someone with the Dodgers, Yankees yeah. or twins. Those are the last three in the first round saying, why would you put that guy with, with our name? So, you know, I'll, 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 you know, put names around. And as I was going through the sort of last five teams in the first round, uh, five or six teams, if I ran the name Ed Howard by them, you sure we'd be interested, but they don't think he's going to be there. Right. So there's still this thought that he's probably going to go higher. Um, so they haven't, no one's really dug in down there you know, what they're going to do that you have to be in react mode. But I think it's one of those cases where we're kind of in between knowing exactly what might happen with a guy like that. Yeah. I mean, I still, in my gut feel like he goes kind of 16 to 20, like he kind of goes mm -hmm. around Tyler Soderstrom and Pete Crow Armstrong, like in that group somewhere. But, and like you said, you, you just can't pin things down. So I, I, I have not, like I said, I've, I've projected out my first 14 picks um, and then I don't know I it's my afternoon's work is projecting out the next 15 and, and then writing them all up before we, we finish finish things off, uh, with your interview with Max Meyer, um, is there a name that has come up that you had not considered previously, uh, or didn't make your first round or hasn't made first rounds previously? That's sort of been an interesting, like, wow, that guy's that, that guy's being mentioned. No, I mean, like, you know, I mentioned Clayton Beater, but we knew he had a good arm. Yeah. Just like, and, you know, and he's popped up, in, including mine, um, you know, the the last few mocks. I feel like there's less of that this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, guys aren't playing. It's not like, like, like Aaron Sabato. I don't know if Aaron Sabato is necessarily going to make it, but he could be in my first round. I, again, I haven't tried to figure out exactly what I'm doing the last 15 spots. And like, it's not like Sabato went out and hit four home runs in the ACC tournament, and now he's you know he's making a push, you know, or, or something like that. Um, no, I, I don't think. I'm just looking. No, I mean, I don't think there. I mean, you know, I, I think guys like Nick Swinney are probably more of a second rounder, maybe Sandwich. You know, I think we've talked about in past podcasts. You know, Jared Schuster's a guy who's going to go higher than we have him ranked. 
I, I think I still feel like he's maybe more of a sandwich pick than a first rounder. But no, I don't, you know, I did, there's no like, hey, Grant Levine could sneak into the first round, you know, out of nowhere type of thing, right. you know, like you'd have in a normal year. Um, I really wanted to try to get Carson Tucker back into the first round and hit and a couple of scouts um, of teams not like in on him because it wasn't the right part of the first round. I said, like, man, I keep thinking he's going to sneak up more. And, you know, two mocks ago, or the, you know, for me, uh, which was what, April 28th, I snuck him in in the back end of the first round. Like, I think he's probably more of a comp or a second round kind of guy, but could he sneak into the back end of the first round like like his brother Cole did? Yeah, I I think he could. Yeah, I think he could too. I mean, I think it's it's tough. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get him in mind because I got to find a home for Ed Howard first. Um, and Ed's not going to go probably super high in my mock because I or who knows. And and then I keep hearing that Nick Lofton and Jordan Foskey, who are a couple college middle infielders, are definitely going to go in the first round. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's in that mix. I mean, uh, but yeah, I, I don't have any shy. I don't think I'm going to have any any shocking revelations for you. Uh, I'm not putting, you know, Blaze Jordan or, or somebody like that in the first round. Um yeah, I don't. I I think it's 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 weird because like I spent <laughs> I've spent a decent amount of time talking and, and texting texting people. I mean, I probably uh, I don't know. I probably talked and texted with you know probably 40, 35, 40 people on both sides, um, and yet I find myself kind of back where I started two weeks ago. So yeah, sometimes the more you know, the less you understand. Maybe I'll just take an e- an easy evening, Jonathan, and I will file. My mo- I will just file the mock I filed two weeks ago with a new intro and see if anybody notices. So Your secret is safe with me and all the people who subscribe. Yeah, nobody tell anybody who, listen, who listens to the podcast. But uh, All right, before, before we close things out, uh, one of the things that's uh, been fun to do uh, is get some one-on-one interview time with, uh, with various prospects. Uh, we heard from Asa Lacey last week. I talked to Robert Hassel um, for a story uh, one-on-one. And I know Jim, that you, uh, were able to talk to Minnesota right-hander Max Meyer, who pretty much everyone is projecting to go somewhere in the top 10. Why don't you, uh, why don't you, why don't you set us up for this interview before we say goodbye? Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun talking with Max, you know, Minnesota right-hander. I feel like his slider is the best pitch in the whole draft. If I could pick one pitch, I would pick Max, Max Meyer's slider and he's got one of the best fastballs, uh, as well. Um, you interesting guy. He's not the biggest guy physically, but he's had no problems adapting from reliever to starter. He keeps seems like he keeps getting stronger and throwing harder and more strikes and the changeups coming and fun interview. Uh, you know, I I feel like it's I ask every player I talk to now uh, about the whole Zoom interview process. We talked about that, what he's doing for baseball and to kind of keep himself occupied. And I asked him. He, he he's a two way player, although he'll be drafted strictly as a pitcher. How, how hitting Max Meyer would approach uh, uh, trying to hit off of pitching Max Meyer. So he, he was a lot of fun, good sport. Uh, about an 18-minute interview, we, we covered a lot of ground. Excellent. Well, we're going to close out with that. Uh, so take a listen to Jim's interview with Max Meyer and uh, join us next week for another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. See you then. Okay, Jim Callis here with Max Meyer from Minnesota, right-handed pitcher who – in a couple of weeks, we'll probably hear his name called in the first five or ten picks of the draft. It looks like uh, Max. Thanks for thanks for joining us here. Is everybody uh, 
with you, you know, well and safe. Are you back home in Minnesota right now or where are you these days? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm back in Minnesota. I'm kind of going back and forth from my cabin in Wisconsin to here. Uh, everyone's, everyone's doing good. I'm on a good schedule, good routine. So yeah, everything's pretty good. What does that routine involve for you baseball wise? I mean, obviously I think if I have the schedule correct, if we'd had a normal year, you guys would have just been done probably with the Big Ten tournament, right? Would have been last weekend? Yeah, something like that, I think. Yeah, so what, so what are you doing to, to stay in shape uh, baseball-wise at this point? Yeah, so right kind of when the season ended, I got back on my five days a week uh, workout routine. Um, and that was the same thing I did uh, leading up to the season, my whole winter routine. So – I got back on that. I've gained, I've gained a lot of LBs too. I'm up to 200 pounds and I feel really good right now. And um, yeah, I just started on my return to throw program. So that's, uh, that's going well. It's been about three weeks on it, but yeah, I'm, I'm just started wrapping up to four times a week instead of three. So, yeah. And I guess in some ways it's kind of hard to know exactly what to gear up for because I mean, as of now, there's no plan in place for minor leagues. I mean, there, has it, crossed your mind have teams even brought up the fact I mean you're a guy who has you know pretty ready stuff you know you've pitched in relief before theoretically somebody could draft you and and maybe use you in a major league role kind of a la Chris Sale you know when he broke into to pro ball when he was a first round pick has anybody talked about that with you about that possibility that or is it just been more general stuff with teams yeah I mean I feel like a couple have brought it up that you know maybe if make a playoff run or something I could go up there and be in a reliever role but yeah I mean I haven't talked about that too much and you know I've kind of been just doing you know the same stuff that I've been getting ready to you know for the season so it's just my same workout same routine I'm not like preparing to throw but you know if they uh, if they ask I'll, I'll always be ready who uh who's the unfortunate person who has to try to catch you because I can't imagine uh you could just say hey dad uh you know, go get 60 feet, six inches away and squat down and I'll throw 98 with a, a 90 mile an hour slider and you can catch it. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't ramped up too much, but my pitching coach, uh, he's always around Ty McDevitt and he's, he's a good athlete. So he's, he's always ready to catch me. That's good. And how about now from a school standpoint, what did you have to do school wise? Cause you probably had a, what about another couple months worth of school still when everything got shut down. Yeah, everything went, you know, virtual, I guess. I didn't I didn't have any classes that I needed to do, uh, like Zoom sit-in lectures or anything, so I kind of just hammered it out. But, you know, it was tough going from, you know, being in class to uh, electronic because I'm not that great at, you know, all this stuff. But, yeah, it, it worked out, and I ended up with uh, the grades I wanted, so it was good. Well, that's good. That's good. And what, uh, what are you doing for fun? Obviously, probably more free time on your hands than you thought you might have. What are you doing for fun these days to, to keep yourself occupied? I'm going, I actually just went to my buddy's uh, uh, house in Bemidji and I was fishing there all weekend and playing some golf. But yeah, I've been pretty much fishing and playing golf and playing video games with the boys too a little bit. So yeah, I've, I've been pretty busy, I guess. What's your handicap golf-wise? How good are you at golf? I shoot about, I'm about an 80 golfer. So not bad. Not bad at all. So, <laughs> so you know, obviously with the with the draft this year, probably you know a lot different than it was for you coming out of high school. Yeah, you know, I know from talking to teams back then, teams knew who you were. You kind of faced the, you know, two things. It's tough draft wise if you're a high school right hander, and if you're not like a six foot four right hander. Did you? you know, I know you got. I think it was the Twins in the thirty fourth round. Did you get a lot of interest from teams in high school, or was it more kind of cursory? 
hey, you know, like your arm, we're going to see what happens when you go to college. What was that process like for you three years ago? Yeah, I mean, nothing really. I guess you can't really tell when you're, you're dealing with like a six foot, 150 pound kid, like you never know how he's going to turn out. But uh, yeah, it was just, I guess, I, I didn't even really know that the draft was still going on. I was on my way back from like, I think like shopping at a mall with my buddy and I get a call that I got drafted. And I was like, are you kidding me? Is there still a draft going on right now? But it was, uh, it was fun. You know, I wasn't, it was, I guess, like a courtesy pick uh, for the twins. Uh, but yeah, it, it wasn't anything like it is now, I guess. Did you have your heart set on the draft at all in high school? Or did you pretty much know, hey, I want to go to college. I want to be a gopher and we'll, we'll see where that takes me. Yeah, it was it was 100%. Go be a golfer and turn into a better ball player. Um, I I really had, thought I had no chance of even getting drafted, but it, it was a cool experience to get picked by the Twins. So you, you you began your college career as a closer. You had a lot of success as a freshman, both at Minnesota with Team USA. You begin your sophomore year as a closer, and then you kind of transition to to starter on the fly. How easy or difficult was it to make that transition? Because it wasn't like that was the plan in the off season. They geared it up for you. I mean, you, you opened the season and actually closed for a while. And then it was like, okay, we need you to start. We need to ramp you up pretty quickly. How, how easy or difficult was that process? Honestly, for me, it was, it was really easy. Uh, just, I guess the only thing that was a little difficult was, you know, getting out there and throwing 50 pitches, 60, just keep building my way up to about a hundred and something. That was the only kind of challenge. And you know how I had to just throw, I guess, my change up more. Because uh, being a closer, you can pretty much dominate with one or two good pitches. So I uh, definitely had to work on that. And, you know, I I made some strides this offseason, too. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like my changeup is one of my best pitches now. But, uh, yeah, it was just, you know, figuring out how to be more efficient with my pitches and stuff. How much – I mean, do you have a preference starting versus relieving? Do you, do you care one way or the other very much? Or which uh, one do you like more? I mean – I love starting and trying to go CG, but I mean, I feel like I live for the moments when it's, you know, we're up by one run and I'm coming in in the last inning. It's just, it fires me up and I feel, you know, it's, it's like the best feeling in the world going out there and shutting one down. And then I know, I mean, I know you've gotten some regular at-bats for the Gophers too. Is part of you kind of hoping you get drafted by a National League teams? Do you get to hit a little bit, even though Universal DH might be coming? Is that in the back of your mind at all? Yeah, it's, you know, we kind of joke around about it, but yeah, I'd love to go, you know, and out and start hitting, hitting a little bit. Cause you know, that's been part of my routine pretty much this whole, my whole life. I feel like I've dedicated more of my time to hitting uh, rather than pitching. So yeah, it's going to be you know, fun to see where I end up. I'm going to assume that if you were facing yourself, pitching Max Meyer would probably have the advantage. How would hitting Max Meyer approach trying to hit off pitching Max Meyer? Oh man. I, I mean, I definitely go out there and try to g hack one, try to try to run into one as a hitter. But yeah, it'd be it'd be a tough AB. But you know, I don't know how it'd end up. I try to definitely be swinging out of my shoes. Are you looking fastball so you can stay away from the slider if if you're hitting I'm against like, yourself? I'm like sitting slider low and away, maybe hit a back foot one out of the park. I don't know. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. In terms of, I always like to ask pitchers to kind of give a, a self scouting report. If you were ranking your pitches in order from most effective to least effective, best to worst, however you want to call it. How would you rank your pitches? Um, you know, I got to say my slider being my best pitch. Uh, it's I can throw it on two different planes, and I feel like I can spot it up, like, honestly, 100% of the time. So that's my that's my best pitch. And then, you know, it's a kind of a toss-up between my fastball and changeup. Like, 
this winter I felt like I was every time I threw it I was just getting swings and misses and I felt so good but you know I couldn't use it too much because honestly I felt like I was speeding the uh, bats up a little bit when I was throwing it because my velo was so up but yeah it's I mean definitely my slider and then my fastball and change I feel like are right neck and neck. Have you been surprised at all at the the, the, the progression of your stuff? Because a lot of times, you know, obviously when you go from reliever to starter, your guys, you know, level off or kind of stay the same. But it seems like you're actually throwing even harder now, like both fastball and slider wise from what scouts were telling me than you were as a closer. I mean, not that you were, you know, throwing 88 miles an hour as a closer or anything. But, I mean, I, I had reports, I mean, kind of 92, 97 all spring. I had scouts tell me they saw you 98 in the ninth inning. Uh, you know, up to 100, the slider up to 91. You know, what do you think's happened? Is it just a matter that the more you've thrown, the, your arm's gotten even stronger? Or what do you think happened there? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't really tell you. I think it's mostly just, you know, getting my strength gains that I got in the off season for sure is a big thing. And uh, another thing is I feel like playing uh, – I feel like just going out every inning, I feel like I just have that same fire as I did when I was a closer. I feel like every inning, even if I'm going in the third, like I still feel like it's just a shut the game – down kind of inning so it's just going out there with a with a passion every time I'm out there you have to to throttle that passion a little bit I mean can you go out and pitch with that edge for nine innings or do you have to tell yourself a little bit yeah I got to pace myself maybe a little bit because hey it's only the second inning or so yeah I mean I go out there and I I give it my all like passion like I was saying but I mean my head coach John Anderson he was like you know, you kind of got to chill out a little bit. You can't go try striking out everyone because that's not how you pitch deep in the game. So kind of my, my mentality after I heard that was try to pound the zone three pitches and try to strike a guy out in three pitches if he hits it or gets it in play. I mean, I'll trust my defense. But, yeah, I was just trying to pound the zone uh, more after that. But I'm never not going to go in there and not want to, you know, punch everyone out because that's kind of just the mentality I have. Did you bring that same passion to the ice? I was reading this story that uh, John Paul Morosi wrote for us on you, and you were – it seemed like you were uh, with a chuckle saying how the last – your last year organized hockey, you led your team in penalty minutes. Yeah, that was, that was uh, probably my most uh, – I mean, I, I love that the most about me, going out there and leading the team in penalty minutes, kind of a grinder, greasy mentality. And, you know, I, I've always been a guy that's going to go out there and kind of lay it all out on the line and, um, you know, whatever it takes to win kind of guy. Got you. So – Obviously, this year, I mean, everything's much different than it would have been, say, a year ago or, or hopefully, you know, n next year. You know, usually when I talk to guys this time of year about the draft, they don't pay too much attention to it because you've got your season distracted. You know, you'd be involved. You know, you guys would be coming off the Big Ten waiting to find out. I guess we're recording this on Tuesday. Yesterday, everybody would have found out what regional they were in. Um, you know, it, it's different now. Do you find yourself – paying more attention to draft chatter or do you try to block it out? How have you been handling what everybody's been saying and writing and projecting might happen draft wise with you? Yeah. I mean, it's tough not to kind of hear everything, you know, you're getting tagged in posts and stuff and you're asking to do different media stuff. But I mean, I've definitely, you know, kind of chilled out and on the weekends, I love to just get away and take my mind off everything, you know, go fishing and stuff like that. But I'm definitely not getting my head, you know, wrapped up in that stuff. It's I'm a guy that's whatever happens, it's going to happen, you know, so I've been, I've been kind of just, you know, you know, whatever happens, happens, I guess. Well, that's a good attitude. I mean, and I'm sure as you probably heard, I mean, I don't think anybody can pinpoint where you're going yet, but it, you're probably, it sounds like first, you know, five or 10 picks. Did you have expectations coming into the year of where you might go in the draft or, or did you, were you not thinking about it that specifically? Honestly, like I couldn't even remember what I was thinking back then. It was pretty much just like, 
all the gains I've made, like my velo in the winter, I was like, just kind of like, holy cow. Like I was like 99 to hundred, most of the pitches in there. And I was like, I just can't wait to see, you know, what happens this year. And it wasn't too much focus on draft. It was kind of like, let's win some ball games. Like we can make a deep run. We have a lot of pitching and we got bats that can produce runs this year. So we got a shot at something special. Yeah. And that's what the shame, I mean, from a, a college baseball standpoint is it's uh there are a lot of teams, you know, I know Florida was number one in the nation. I'm a Georgia grad. We had a team that was capable of maybe going to Omaha. A lot of teams had a lot of high expectations. We're off to good starts. And, and then, unfortunately, it, it ends so abruptly. You know, one of the things that's unique with this scouting process this year is I don't think I've ever asked players before about uh, the whole Zoom meeting process, which is now at least standard for 2020. How many different Zoom meetings have you done, and what has that process been like? Is it usually you and a couple guys? I mean, it sounds like, from what I've heard, the guys go at the top of the draft sometimes. It, it might be five or six guys in a Zoom meeting at one time with you. Yeah, I've, I've had about maybe 10 or 11, and a couple are doubling back here. So it's going to be – I mean, it's been I'm, – I'm honestly kind of used to it. It's, it's weird to say that, but, yeah, it's, I'm kind of used to it, and – they have anywhere from five to six, you know, a couple teams had like eight, not going to name names, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, just to do this all over, over zoom. And I feel like that's kind of the norm now. I wouldn't even imagine what it'd be like if we weren't in this. Cause I, what would they have like five or six guys come meet me and that'd be a lot different, but yeah, it's been, it's been cool to kind of have a, have this experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a lot different because I think what would typically happen is teams wouldn't get the opportunity to talk to players like this at all like you know maybe when your season's over the teams that were most interested in you would bring you in for workouts and then you meet with them kind of like right at the last second but I know I mean this obviously hasn't been the situation everybody hoped for but I know one thing just from talking to teams it seems like they feel like they've gotten to know players a little bit better you know you, you get more time to spend with them I mean obviously if you guys had just gotten done with the Big Ten or going to a regional you're not going to be talking to 10 or 11 teams sitting down for an hour. You know, you're going to be focused on, on baseball and, and, until the season ends. What do you think has been either the strangest question you've been asked in a Zoom meeting or, or the question that made you think the most? Was there anything that kind of caught you off guard in any of these Zoom meetings? Um, nothing too crazy. Um, but I'd say like the one that kind of I, I had to think the hardest was – it was, uh, I don't really know how to say it. It was, do you love to win or hate to lose more or something like that? And I, that kind of stumped me hard the first time. And then I, I said, I hate to lose because I feel like just winning is an expectation I have. And I feel like I always, I always have to win. And, you know, if I lose, it's like, I mean, I was just, I'm, I'm all in to win. Like if I win, I've already like, I mean, it's, it's so hard to even explain. Yeah. Right now. It's, just, it's just nuts. But yeah, I, I just feel like, that was a tough question. And, you know, a lot of them are pretty, pretty easy background and kind of growing up what you did. And uh, also questions like I give them, you know, what their organization's like, but yeah, it, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. You know, kind of the questions that they have. They have. Are, are you big into like the pitching technology with Rapsodo and all that kind of stuff? I mean, do you ask teams about, you know, how they use the technology and do they ask you how you use the technology there at Minnesota? Um, no, I mean, I've I've never been into technology. I've never picked up a weighted ball in my life. I've never really got on Rapsodo. So I guess the one question I kind of have is, like, I'm pretty excited to figure out, you know, where my balls, like, play more effective and more efficient, like where my spin rates play. And I have no idea, like, any of that stuff. So it's going to be fun to learn here soon. So that's scary. So you're, you, you theoretically could get better if teams can unlock some of that stuff. Right, that's, that's right. <laughs> 
So you were on, on Team USA last summer, Max, and, and I was looking at the roster. And I think there, there, there could be a total of nine first-round picks in this year's draft from that team last summer. You know, the team's usually loaded, and, and last year was no exception. And I always like to ask guys when you're playing with players like that, who, who stuck out to you playing on that team, either as a hitter or a pitcher or both, where you're like, wow, these guys are pretty talented. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, if I had to pick one guy, I'd say Heston Kerstad, like, going in there. I mean, I didn't – going in there, I didn't really know any of these guys really from – because I'm a, you know, Midwest guy and all these guys were down south. So, you know, Heston just – all these guys that are, like, the top hitters in the draft, you can just tell they're different, just barreling balls, every single one they hit, and you can just hear different sounds off the bat. So it was, it was fun It was fun watching BP, I tell you that. Guys sending them 30 yards over the fence, so that was – that's pretty special being there. How about, I mean, when you're on a staff like that, I mean, it was you and then, you know, four other guys who could be first round picks and Asa Lacey, Reed Detmers, Cole Wilcox, Kate Cavalli were all part of the, the team last year. Do you guys pick each other's brains? I mean, you try to show it, you know, like, Hey, how do you throw that pitch? Or, or do people ask you, I'm sure I'm going to suspect Max that you probably got asked, like, how do you throw that slider by, by some guys perhaps? Yeah. I feel like for me, I mean, I didn't do too much, like, asking, you know, how people, like, hold their stuff or whatever, their mentalities. It was kind of just, like, I was just more interested in what they do in their free time and stuff like that. It, I didn't really talk about baseball too much with them. It was just kind of trying to get the, getting to know them better. But, yeah, I mean, they've they've asked me a couple times about my grips. And, I, I mean, I feel like I'm the only guy in the world that could hold the baseball how I do. It's it's so weird how I throw it, like, choking it and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's it was a fun experience, and I got to take a lot of memories away from it. So, well, thanks for everything, Max. It, it's been fun talking to you. It's uh, good luck. Uh, I guess we only have about a couple weeks now before the draft, which should be a big night for you. And I, you know, I know it's unfortunate this season didn't necessarily play out like you hoped, but uh, I think you put yourself in good position for the draft and should be a lot of fun. Where, how are you planning on spending draft night? Are you at home with family or do you have plans bigger than that? Uh, um, I think I'll be at home, um, maybe my cabin, but yeah, I'll have, I'll have some close uh, family members come by, maybe some friends. I don't, I don't know how much people we can have in our house, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a great night. Yeah. Well, good luck. Uh, good luck with that, Max. And look forward to, I'm looking forward to being able to see you again on the mound sometime soon. And uh, in the back of my mind, I'm kind of rooting for one of these Chris sales scenarios where maybe, uh, maybe we see you, we get the big league season going and, and see you in the big leagues, maybe even this year. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Max. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.